Welcome to the Discomfort by Design podcast, where we showcase people who chase discomfort, live life on the fringe, and pursue high adventure. We bring you the stories that inspire you to go find out. Now here's your host, Taylor Quick. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Discomfort by Design. Treat for you guys today as I am joined with Major Donnie Bigham. What's going on, Donnie? Man, everything's good over here in South Carolina. I really appreciate you throwing me on the podcast this week. Yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, as I was telling you before we started the show, man, you were kind of one of the guys that I had targeted on my list of people that I wanted to get on. Uh, from the from the moment I met you um, a couple years back at, at Winter Strong and then seeing you at Summer Strong and just interacting with you um, at the Sorenex things that we've been to and hearing some other podcasts you've been on, I was like, man, this dude gets it. And uh, then obviously um, with some of the connections I have with people in the military, once I'd met you, started asking some questions um, from other people and hearing some of the stories from people that were at Fort Benning when you were down there, uh, man, I, I am I am honored to have someone like yourself on the podcast, someone I consider a true American hero. Um, that uh, you know, you you uh, you volunteered to write a check, man. That uh, you pay for pay for in blood. So uh, I appreciate that. Um, you, you're not the first vet I want to have on. Not going to be the last vet I have on. And um, but I, I am so excited to have you. So uh, man, welcome to the show. And uh, man, again, just I appreciate you coming on, Donnie. Big Thank time. you so much. I'm very humbled and honored. It's just a pleasure to have an opportunity to, to share a little bit of my story, you know, with your your listeners. So hopefully there might be a few nuggets that they can take away, you know, and, and like we say in the military, you know, put in our rucksack to help us another day. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I, as most people that listen to this know, I, I'm not uh, I'm not a veteran. I didn't serve. I have a lot of family members that did. Um, both of my wife's brothers served. One of them currently is. I actually got an update from him today. He, he sent a message to our group chat. We have a family group chat, and we hear from him very sporadically. He's deployed right now. Um, he's with the Marine Corps. He's in a support role attached to a recon unit with the infantry in the Marine Corps. And uh, he, he found a Popeye's in one of the countries he's in, and he was so excited. Uh, oh, yeah, some fried chicken. Was, man. <laughs> You gotta, so, you gotta enjoy the little small things, you know, that that God blesses us with. It just populates out of nowhere. Yeah. So he he was very excited. So this is his third deployment with the Corps. Um, he's been on a couple uh, already. He was at Baran for a while, and then uh, I think I said that right, Bahrain. There we go. And then uh, he was in Spain, <clears throat> in Spain as well. I kind of joke with him that that one was just a vacation because he sent me pictures every every Sunday from the beach they were hanging out on on their days off. That's um, what I'm talking about. You got to get some of those deployments every now and then, you know. Yeah. Uh, those hard ones, you know, kind of take a lot out of you. So it really is really good to be able to go over to those places and just enjoy, you know, some of the places that God allows us to see. That's right. So he's he's on this one. He left in February. Um, and so we're, we're hoping that uh, that everything goes well, that he'll be able to swing back a little early. He's got a baby girl that's due at the end of August. Uh, it's his first one. And um so they, they told him recently that if if there was a plane leaving, and there was a spot on the plane, and they were off duty, and Mars was in the fifth house, and the wind was blowing 4.2 miles an hour out of the east, and they, and the, the four-star general was facing five clicks to the right, he'd get on that plane and go. And uh, so we're you know we're not getting trying not to get hopes up. And his wife is uh, 
definitely trying not to get her hopes up in that. But we're we're very we're hoping that he he's going to get to get on that plane and get home for the birth of his baby girl. But um, and in that vein, uh, just take a moment and as we just kind of pass Memorial Day and all that, I want to make sure that I say thank you just to all uh, you major and everyone that has taken up that mantle and served and been willing to lay their life on the line for this country. Um, me, myself, uh, everybody that I have on this podcast is very like-minded in the fact that we appreciate the service that you guys do and, um, and, and the sacrifices that you're willing to make. So thank you. I really you appreciate that Taylor. And I tell you, I, uh, I would do it again. You know, if I was given the opportunity to go back, you know, be a young 18 year old again. And when I joined the Marine Corps to start out, I would reach back and do it again with a different set of lens uh, versus as a young, Im immature, you know, young man when I first uh, began to serve in the military. Yeah, so let's uh, let's get into some of that. I, I really am excited about this. So I want to do a deep dive on Donnie. Um, so tell me about Donnie. Where are you from? You know, where'd you grow up? Give me your backstory, and then let's lead up to that uh that joining the Marine Corps right off, and, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So, where, man, tell us all about you. Where are you from? Okay, so I'm from Clinton, South Carolina. Uh, that is located in Lawrence County, just south of um, Greenville, near Presbyterian College. Just a really small town, uh, probably about 4,000 people in that entire town. Uh, but it's unfortunate. You know, I didn't do nothing but be born there, and my father was an air traffic controller uh, for the federal government. So we essentially moved from one state after another from the age, you know, when I was born until I was about in the sixth or seventh grade when I finally came back to Clinton. But during that time span, I lived in places like Louisville, Kentucky. I lived in places like Memphis, Tennessee. I lived out in Mississippi. Oh, uh, where'd you I, live I, in Mississippi? I, I can't even remember. I was so little to be able to tell you what uh, town I was in. Uh, those other ones, I was a little bit older because that was before I was even, uh, you know, like three years old. I was like an infant, you know, according to my parents. Um, oh man, I, I, if you ever, if you get a chance to figure that out, I'd love to know. That's I, I'm from Mississippi, born and raised here, lived here my whole life. So I, that that uh, that intrigues me. Go ahead. I definitely have to find out. Uh, lived in Atlanta, lived up in uh, the North Carolina area for a while, and then, like I said, came back to South Carolina, finished up there, graduated high school there. You know, I was an avid, uh, I guess you could say, weightlifter in my own way, you know, with the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and uh, Sylvester Stallone's and, and Lee Haney's. Those magazines were kind of popular, you know, in the 80s. And and I was one of those little guys that, that was like, hey, I, I'm not going to get any taller. I got to try to see if I can get a little stronger so I can, I can compete in the <laughs> things that I enjoy doing. Uh, so when I was about 13, my father bought me one of them old school cement weight a uh, bench press uh, that I put between me and my brother that was five years younger in the same bedroom between two single beds. Uh, and, and the workouts began then. And if you if you ask my uh, younger brother now, he'll tell you he hated the days when the doors were shut and it was in the summer and the whole mirrors were fogged up because we weren't getting the air circulating and I was in there just trying to move weight. Oh, I love it. I love it. As a high school strength coach, man, I, I you know, I can immediately think right now. Yesterday morning at about about 9:45, 10 o'clock, you know, I had to I had to yank open the roll-up door on the weight room because it got so steamy in there with our, all our guys lifting the window. The mirrors were fogging up, so I, I love it. Um, so you know, I, I love that you go that route because you know you 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 got into 
the the strength thing when when it was the celebrity that was you know Arnold and Sylvester and, and back in the you know back in the eighties like you said is before you know before YouTube and social media and and cell phones and all the the right. craziness that the world of athletics has become now man those guys were just I mean they were godlike. Back You're then. exactly right. I mean, that was kind of my thing that I would have my dad or mom, whoever went to the grocery store, I would ask them, would they pick me up a magazine? You know, some type of flex, muscle fitness, whatever. And I would go through and try to pull those workouts out of there and just start doing them. You know, what what equipment I had available. Man, I, I love that. You know, we, we see all the time, especially, especially on social media within the strength and conditioning sphere, um, that, that you shouldn't just copy and paste workouts to anybody. You know, you should you should definitely talk to somebody and find something that's suited just for you and blah blah blah. And, and while while there is some merit to that, you know, obviously you shouldn't go and and copy and paste what the Atlanta Falcons are doing to use with your high school football team. Sure, I get I that. But but man, there are, there's guys all over the country like yourself who got that right out of a magazine and and fell in love with physical culture just like that. From a no, copy you're exactly right that. That was a staple in it. And I started seeing results, you know, in the sports that I was participating in in high school. Uh, and I was becoming more competitive. And I knew that was the edge uh, that was allowing me to essentially reach my God-given potential. Whether it's whether I was only five foot six and 165 pounds, you know, I could still do some things that a lot of people over in their 200s and over six foot, you know, couldn't move those feet, which again gave me that benefit on the field. Well, I was not the greatest athlete. I was above average. Uh, grades was not where I needed it to be. Um, and financially, my father had filed bankruptcy when he lost his job in 1982. He, he was part of the strike with the biggest loss of air traffic controllers to be fired. It's still in the history uh, of, of federal employees at, wow. at this point, even in 2022. So we lost wow. everything in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and since my dad was in that position, he's like, you're going to have to get your own loan if you want to go to school, you know, and, and baseball don't offer a lot of money. They only give some small nickel and dime, you know, to go and play school somewhere, especially if you're like me and you're not one of the elite athletes that's coming out of high school. Uh, so I said, Hey, this ain't going to work for me. I'm not going to work here in the meal. And I said, it's time to, you know, do something that I, I think that I can do very well at. Uh, and I went ahead and signed up and joined the Marine Corps. Awesome. So you, you reported to Paris Island when? I reported to Paris Island February 24th, 1991. All right. So just February 24th, 1991, for reference, I turned two years old, 22 days before that. Um, <laughs> just just for everybody listening, Major Bigham is, is what we call the old school. But I will say this, having been around Donnie several times, he is uh, just, just as vitally strong and, and vibrant as... Uh, somebody half his age by large and far uh and uh so i am I'm, I'm really excited about this i've got a little bit of a you know in insight into some uh, marine corps basic training with my brother-in-law who's in the corps um you know what all the stories and things i heard when when uh, when he came back and actually he just told us the other day that when he gets back from this current deployment and he uh, re-enlist he's gonna switch over and become a di uh so oh, that's awesome man yeah i uh I went through 3rd Battalion Kilo Company 3048. Uh, that was a class I was in, and uh, it was really a good 
it was best for me to really take an option with the Marine Corps. I still believe they have the best initial training compared to any other branch. And I can really say that because I did serve in the Army and I had to go back through some of the basic training for the Army because it was a little later on in my career. Uh, so sure. I have experience uh, on both sides. And I would say that Army and the Marine Corps, being that they provide the most combat soldiers that serve, uh, they're going to be the most uh, advantageous for a young person that wants to join to really get that esprit de corps, get that discipline, get that physical dominance to be able to reach the potential they'd like to reach. So let me ask you a question. And for anyone that's listening that knows a Marine or is a Marine, um, so you, you you joined in you joined the Marine Corps, you got out of the Marine Corps, and then you joined the Army, obviously. Um, so when someone asks you what you are, Major, do you say I'm a soldier or do you tell them I'm a Marine? A Marine? Well, you know, since I retired out of the Army, it's based on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to another <laughs> Army guy, I'm going to have to say soldier. You know, because I did do I did do 20-plus years in the Army, uh, and I had a little over six years total in the Marine Corps. So, uh, but yes, at heart, I'm still a Marine, uh, and I'm always a Marine. It's never going to change. So that's, that's something I've always found interesting. You know, you talk to people that have served. Oh, I was in the Air Force. I was in the Army. I was in the Coast Guard. I was this. I was that. But if you go find my uncle right now who's in his 70s, and his military career really was only about the time of Vietnam. Uh, he was wow. drafted into the, into the Marine Corps, and, and he served in Vietnam, and, he, and then that was about it. Um, but if you go ask him to this day, he will tell you, I am a Marine. That's right. That's right. Uh, Once a Marine, always a Marine. I've always found that very interesting. And it's something that that type of identity and camaraderie is something I think is really, really cool. So that's that's really awesome. Um, okay, so you got into the Corps, served six years in the Corps. Um, and then, you know, after, after that time period, was there a delay between being in the Corps and then going into the Army? So what, what happened there? So, so, yeah, there was a little delay. You know, I got out of the Marine Corps and, uh, you know, I, I obviously had a family and two boys at the time um, that were young like yours. Uh, I had a, I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old at the time. Uh, and I ended up joining the National Guard while I was in school. Uh, so I went to school, you know, to complete my degree with the anticipation of going back into the Marine Corps as an officer. You know, that's that was really my ultimate goal. And, you know, this was prior to 9-11 and at that time period, unbeknownst to me, uh, if you're over 27, uh, you had to have a waiver to come in as an officer. Well, I was over 27 at the time when I finished my degree. Uh, and, you know, the Marine Corps said, Donnie, we'll take you back in. But you're going to have to come back in enlisted and then apply for OCS while you're on back on active duty. And I, I just could not do it. I still owed about $36,000 on student loans. Uh, so I picked up the phone and called the Army. Army said, we'll take you right now. We'll send you straight to OCS and we'll lie, we'll take care of the rest of uh, your, your uh, dollars that you owe, you know, towards your GI Bill and towards the other aspects of uh, your schooling. So that's when I made the transition a, a little bit later uh, in my uh, career. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that definitely merits a, a, a talking point for a second for anyone listening that's is is taking you know a time in their life where they're struggling with trying to figure out some direction and what to do um and the, the u.s military offers absolutely incredible pathways to success um i was talking with uh with a marine the other day i took my kids to swim lessons down the road here and um as our class was finishing up the next class was coming in and i noticed um 
one of the guys had a EGA tattoo, and I, I asked him, you know, I said, you know, asked him, you know, what Marine group or whatever he was in. He told me, and he was a third Marines, blah blah blah, and um, and we were just kind of talking about it briefly, and he said. He said, man, yeah, you know, I want, he's talking about he wanted his kids to, to go to the military. He said, especially, he said the Marine Corps, especially because it's such a diverse, um, different bunch of things you can do. And he was saying, you know, if you don't have any idea what you want to do at 18, go do your four to six years. You'll figure it out or you won't, but you'll at least have some really good skills and a great thing on your resume. You're exactly right, Taylor. That's one thing I do send home to every parent or every young person, um, you know, old Bo. Uh, that that uh, works with a uh, tough tread uh, that that owns a uh, Uber Zotti. You probably met him up at uh, Sornex. You know his son was there uh, this past uh, Summer Strong, Summer Strong 15, and I got an opportunity to sit down with him and and uh, eat some food and and we talked a little bit about it because he's in high school looking at you know some options and that's one of the big things I emphasize to him too is if you go in enlisted and you spend three to four years and then make that transition you're going to be more respected and you're going to understand what it requires to be a good leader because you've already served at the lowest level before you became an officer. Oh, absolutely. You know, my, I, I know I've, I've spoken about him already, but my brother-in-law before he actually enlisted in the Corps was going through um, the process of, of applying through the Naval Academy. Um, and that was one of the things he was so very concerned about was that he didn't want to come out of the Naval Academy as an officer and and have no idea how to relate as he said it he said i don't want to have you know no idea how to relate to my infantry grunts that that know way more than i do but somehow i have to you know tell them what to do and, and that was i mean that's such a weird dynamic and and you know we can we can chase that rabbit all day long but um but yeah just kind of bring that full circle i i think that the military is a great great route to figure out you know who you are and and what you need to be doing in this life and and, and it ain't for everybody it wasn't for me um i i, I will tell anybody that ask uh when i got when i graduated high school and it was time to think about a military career it was the height of the wars over in afghanistan and iraq and and it was at the time that was probably the most uh deadly time for the american military members in that conflict um you know, we, we were getting reports pretty much daily of, of lives lost here and there. Um, and, man, I'm, I'm six and a half foot tall, and I was like, man, I can't blend in nowhere. <laughs> they no, see me and put perfect. a, put a red perfect. dot on my head in a hurry. That, that makes perfect sense, and, and that's one of the caps, uh, areas that I emphasize to those young people. If you already got a plan, you know, you've got a, a career field, you've got an opportunity to, to go to college, and you've got a, you've got a goal already set, I say rock and roll with it, but I said if you're gonna if you're in a position where you're just kind of floating and you don't even know what you do to take to go to college, you don't even know if you're gonna play sports in college. You have no purpose. You're just essentially showing up, trying to figure it out on the fly. I said don't take that risk. Just go ahead and do two, three, four years in the military, learn a little bit, grow a little bit there. Now have the financial stability. If you say I want to go to college, get out because the GI Bill now pays you a stipend of about $1,600 a month for housing, which is like a part-time job at the same time as paying for all your schooling. So it's a no-brainer, you know what I mean, to be able to go serve if you don't already know what you want to do in life. But if you do know and military is not part of it, I say go for it. You've got a plan, you've got a purpose, you got a goal. 
Well, uh, let me ask you this: What, what, what? Are you talking about sixteen hundred dollars a month on the GI Bill? Um, what's the chances of a six foot five, thirty three year old, nine toed doofus getting back, getting in the military at this point? <laughs> <laughs> I could use an extra sixteen hundred dollars my own self. Yeah, I tell you, they uh, they can uh, run them up. I think until about thirty eight. So you you got a little bit of buffer in there. You know, so you have to make that decision in the next four or five years. <laughs> I, I will tell you this: that, that there is no decision to make on that on that front I because I would season. never get to basic <laughs> training because my wife would go to jail for murdering me for telling her, "Hey, baby, I'm gonna leave for two months. You are gonna have the kids by yourself. I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go fall in formation and and, and be a soldier. She would. She'd murder me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Rightfully so. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's that's fantastic. So, um. You served in the in the army for twenty plus years, um, and have, have worked all the way up and retired as the rank of major, which is no small feat. That is, uh, wow, uh, really, really incredible. Um, so walk us through that that twenty years. I mean, you ain't got to take you know you don't have to do a deep dive on it, but where 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 did the army take you? What all did you get to do? What all did you see? How did how did that twenty years get you to where you are now? Wow, great question, uh, Taylor, you know, and um, I'm going to try to do my best to try to stay within an elevator pitch, you know, because it's uh, it can get long-winded real quick. Uh, uh, that's that's, years, that's perfectly you know, fine. Things, Take your time. 20 years seems like a long time, but when you really reflect back on it, it's almost like a blink of an eye. When you think about all the people you've served with, all the locations you've served, you know, all your time in combat uh, to – to growing in each position from different mentors and stuff. So yes, I, I started out there with OCS, uh, kind of completed my OCS and airborne air assault ranger school kind of knocked out some of that. Cause I was just, I was an infantry officer uh, and I had a passion to serve in that community because, you know, once, once I was in the Marine Corps, I learned that everybody's an infantryman. So that was always my passion was to be able to lead soldiers in combat uh, and really be able to have the ability to prepare them. That was really my overall goal was preparing them for combat. Um, so yeah, I got an opportunity to serve uh, with light infantry units, heavy infantry, heavy uh, combat arms units. Uh, I, I had an opportunity, you know, to be able to to help the army. You know, even later in my career, I, after spending all those years in combat, I deployed to you know Bosnia, Kosovo area. I deployed to, deployed to uh, Iraq, Kuwait, uh, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan. You know, I got an opportunity to, to fight in all those areas, you know, and everywhere I fought, you know, God took care of me and my men and women uh, everywhere. You know, I just trusted him uh, and really trusted our hard training, you know, that we did. I was, I was probably not a lot of friends with a lot of soldiers, you know, during the training. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, at the hard training really paid off for us uh, because all the combat tours I had, I didn't lose one soldier, uh, you know, under my command or under my leadership, you know, and I can't take that testimony, but I can definitely, you know, allude to the fact that, you know, God protected us, but he ensured that we had some hard training during those time periods. No, I mean, that that's a great point, you know, and, People hear, people hear that that may not believe necessarily the same way that you and I believe. Who may not have the same, you know, religious, you know, under under 
excuse me, foundation. There we go. Thank you. Couldn't think for a second. The same religious foundation that you and I have. You know, um, I, I've made it no secret. I'm a Christian. I've I've said that multiple times on this podcast. I know that you are as well. Um, <clears throat> and, and it is very easy for people who aren't to say, oh, the big man in the sky, the you know, the celestial Santa Claus, whatever, and and, and kind of scoff at that. But I love the fact that you bridge the two together, right? That, that the belief in the faith is one aspect and it's a very big deal, but faith requires action, right? That scripture right. plainly says that in the book of James, that, that faith without works is in fact dead. So in, in your side of things there with your soldiers, the works aspect was putting in the training on the front end. Yes, we're going to, you you know, you as, as the command, as the leader, there are trusting that God is going to protect you and your soldiers and those under your watch. But you're going to do your part to make sure that they're in the best position possible to be successful and to be safe and to, to make sure they make that trip back home in one piece. And I think that is, I think that's something that so many people miss is that faith, faith is not just sitting back on your, on your rear end and saying, all right, God, you just take care of everything. Faith is saying, Hey, I'm about to work my tail off and do everything I can. And I'm going to trust you to take over where I end. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, two different, key leaders, you know, in, in God's word, you know, when you start talking about uh, Paul and his his fight and his struggle and how hard he worked uh, throughout all 39 different countries, whether he showed up physically or, or whether he got a letter and prayed for them. You know, when you start thinking about his testimony or you look at Job's testimony and you really look at all the work that he had to do to build that relationship with Christ and then to have it all taken away to essentially be blessed again and be faithful during those times of discomfort. That was beyond imagination when you really read those. Uh, so that was some of the things that, with regards to my prayer time and my hard times that I was in leadership position because I knew God had put me there for a reason. And that reason was to ensure that we trained at a level that caused discomfort for everybody within our organization so that we had the best opportunity to hopefully when we have adversity in combat, it's nowhere near what we've actually endured during our training. Now that's, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. You know, and man, I, I think that, that, that level of adversity, the level of discomfort is, is, is vital and it's important because if, if we're not finding discomfort you know, and that is the theme of this entire podcast is if we're not finding discomfort every single day, then then we're, we're just dying. You're, you're just dying a slow, miserable death that the only way that we're going to live um, and, and to, to really have that life is to chase that discomfort and find that edge and, and keep growing and keep pushing and, and go, you know, you go find that boundary or that personal boundary, that that limit and you stretch it and you stretch it and you stretch it and it's going to hurt at first. It's going to suck. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be, you know, just going to rebuff on you. But eventually it stops rebuffing so hard and that limit starts moving out. And, and it's incredible, absolutely incredible what human beings are capable of when they do that. I mean, you're you exactly right, Taylor. 
this this makes gives me a allude to a little short story, you know, about infantry officer basic leader course. Uh, I was a trainer there for about 18 months, and that's essentially, you know, you take soldiers that just completed OCS, West Point, Citadel, VMI, whatever organization they came out of. That is their first unit of assignment with regards to becoming an infantry officer. So I had an opportunity to train hundreds and hundreds of them during my tenure there. And, and one of the big lasting uh, things that I received from most of my graduates was when they went on to ranger school, ranger school was way easier than it ever was at Ibolic um, because I made the course so much more difficult in certain facets of it. So when they did get challenges in further courses, it was very minimal in comparison to what they've already endured. And I can give you a quick example of, you know, I called it dancing with your rucksacks or partying with your rucksack. You know, it'd be oh dark 30 in the morning, about 3 a.m. I'd love to show up on a, a fire, a little fire base or a patrol base uh, in their perimeter. And I'd always go in and get the little senior leader and take him with me. And we'd go and check the perimeter, and make sure our security's in place. And if you know anything about that, you have certain rules you have to adhere to. You know, are we at 75% security, 50% security? Well, it's about the big guns. You know, you carry you carry a pig or a 240 Bravo is what you carry, you know, for a, a, an infantry platoon. Uh, and that platoon is supposed to have three guns at kind of the apex of a triangle, you know, that's pulling security. So I would take that lieutenant, walk around at three in the morning with him. I'd lay down beside the guys that were supposedly pulling security and they were asleep. And I'd whisper to that lieutenant, I'd say, is the security good here at this uh, 12 o'clock apex? He'd be like, oh no, it's not good, sir. Because he already then told me it's good. Our security's good, we're locked and loaded. Go to the second perimeter, apex, and it's, it's the same, dead asleep. So by the time we got to the third one, and, and you, now you have all three apexes not asleep because you're simulating combat, nobody's pulling security. So what does that do? The enemy gets a vote and he comes in. So now I tell everybody, you know, you got three minutes to get on the road with all your rucksacks on. You're going to find your battle buddy and you're going to lock arms and you're going to do all kinds of different squat exercises at 3.30 in the morning with the rucksack on uh, that allows you to hopefully deal with some discomfort, deal with some adversity, start to see where you have some issues within that organization uh, to allow them to grow just through that small little milestone. Yes. Yes, I love it. And and one of the, one of the things that I've I've been saying lately um, to our team, to our guys, and you know, I I will never be the one that compares high school sports to the military or to serving in combat because it's it's not remotely the same thing. I cannot stand it when coaches do that and, and they try to compare playing football to getting shot at, and I'm like. It, it aggravates me quite honestly. That's uh, let me get off my soapbox for a second. Um, but but one of the things that I've been but I've been talking about lately and telling our kids is, man, you got you choose what you choose your discomfort. You you're gonna be uncomfortable one way or the other. It's gonna be hard somewhere. You're gonna choose where it's hard because if you choose the hard now, it's not so hard later. So for instance, with your situation there, if they'd have chosen to not go to sleep. They're not doing those squats with the rucksacks on at 3.30 right. in the morning. So they chose they chose the comfort of sleep and in doing so chose the discomfort of the 3.30 a.m. rucksack squats. So that's, right. that's, that, that's kind of where I've been at with choose your hard lately. And because one, one way or the other, there's going to be discomfort. So just pick, pick where it is. 
No, you're exactly right, Taylor. It's uh, it's unfortunate. There's a lot of people uh, that doesn't have a relationship with Christ to really realize what the Bible alludes to. And it's all about adversity. It's all about discomfort. It's all about different trials. Those aspects in our life is, is what makes us the man or the woman we are. And, and without those, we're just not going to grow. We're going to stay idle. We're going to be in a position that's going to isolate us. And then we're just not going to be able to reach our, our, our potential in life. Uh, and when I really think about a lot of discomforts in my life, you know, especially in the military, you know, you train hard uh, and, and you feel like you've done everything you can do. Uh, and, and then, as I stated earlier, you know, going into a patrol base, the enemy gets a boat, you know, and I love that analogy when you think about a helicopter that's flying over the edge of a water in an ocean. And, you know, you've got a high speed ranger or a marine, recon marine that's, that's hanging from below and a shark's coming up out of the water to bite. Did you really take that in consideration when you did your enemy analysis and, and you prepared for that combat mission? when you were flying over that water. And I would say nobody's typically going to do that. You know, you're not going to look at that. But at the end of the day, that is a trial. That is something you have to be prepared for, the worst case scenario. Uh, and I can think about many combat operations in Afghanistan. Uh, and one that comes right to my you know, tip of the tongue is one that's really, really personal for me uh, as a, not only as a, a commander, but as a, a warrior myself. Uh, you know, you, you put yourself back in 2009 uh, and you're out in Afghanistan in Paktia, Providence, uh, just south of uh, Chamkani, uh, that's in a small town called Johnny Kale. Uh, and in that area, I was serving as alongside with um, 7th Special Forces Group. I was an actual embedded trainer. They now call them uh, an SFAB uh, unit. They actually made units now that that really collaborate with a lot of our special operations unit. Uh, so our primary mission was to go over there and train uh, indigenous forces, train Afghan police, train Afghan uh, border patrol, train Afghan armies. Uh, well, on that day, uh, we, we'd spent a couple of days down in Johnny Kale. Uh, it's approximately, you know, about 35 kilometers from our fire base uh, and it's south. Uh, and you say, well, man, that's not that far. You know, that's a, that's a, maybe a 30, 35 minute drive, you know, when you were turning back to your, uh, your fob. Uh, but in reality, when you, you're riding on the mountains passes and you don't have, you know, any guards on the road and you only got about six inches of clearance uh, before you fall off the cliff and, and you're, tra you're traversing in some very uh, audacious terrain, you, you essentially take you three to six hours to make that trip, traveling at, you know, anywhere between five and eight miles an hour in a lot of areas. A lot of areas you have to dismount to really clear certain areas because it's a high-prone area where the enemy has some activity. You have to embed some different sniper teams in place to give you some oversight to allow you to bound from one mountain uh, crest to another mountain crest. Uh, so we were we had spent two days down in Johnny Kale. So what does that tell you? The enemy's got to vote. They had an opportunity to know we've got to come back on one route. That is the only route we can get back through uh, that kind of choke point to get back to our fire base. 
So what does that mean? They had 48 hours to kind of prepare for what we were going to do, you know, to return. They knew we were coming back through. Well, I had approximately 60 uh, soldiers and Afghan police that was with me, you know, along that route as we returned. So we're returning back through there. We're coming out of a pass uh, and we're coming up to an area where they have an, uh, a really good location for L ambush. And if you know anything about combat operations, it essentially makes an L. Within that L apex, you typically put your most casually producing weapon uh, in the apex of that. So they had uh, uh, essentially had already set up a PKM uh, and tear cased uh, RPGs. And when I say tear case, it's the same thing as you would look at on a, on, on a flight or on a house. You're going from the first floor to the second floor. You know, you'll go up eight to 10 steps and you're at a higher level. Well, that's kind of how they did their RPGs. They tear cased it up that mountain peak uh, that was in line with the apex of the PKM, which is a 7.62 machine gun that's pretty powerful that can essentially cause a lot of casualties in a short amount of time. Well, as we're coming up through that area, my lead vehicle gets caught in that L ambush. I'm second vehicle in the order of movement. That first vehicle takes a lot of contact, okay? Enough contact that causes my gunner that's up in a turret of a Humvee, he's got a 50 cal machine gun, but he actually takes so many rounds on the glass of it. And he's similar to yourself, Taylor. He's the tallest guy uh, in my organization. He was approximately six foot five, okay? So what does that mean? Well, when you're standing in a turret, you don't even really need the seat to sit down on because you're so tall, you put your feet on the bottom and you have to kind of squat down a little bit to get behind the protection of that thick bulletproof glass, okay? So he's kind of got his head up at the crest of it. That, that PKM's open fire on him and he fires enough at that close proximity because he is less than 35 yards from the muzzle of that machine gun that's embedded into the wood line. When it starts firing, it has so many rounds it hits it simultaneously that it starts to chip and crack that glass. As he's traversing the weapon system over there to try to engage, he starts taking glass all in the face, in his eyes and everything. So what does that do? It kind of terminates that gun so it cannot fire upon that threat. He essentially drops down. I got a vehicle now that essentially has no combat power to return fire on that gun. So the discomfort and adversity started right there at that moment that we knew as an organization, and I knew as a commander, there's going to be a potential threat right there in that L ambush. So, wow. Okay. Like, I'm, man, I'm, I'm a very visual person, so I'm imagining all this as it happens, right? And so God's getting just peppered with, with shells um, and glasses going everywhere. And all right, so, you know, we've heard this all the time. You do not rise to the level of the adversity, but you sink to the highest level of your training. So at that point, what happens how do you engage? How do you, cause I mean, you're in an L ambush. There is no going backwards at this point. You're, you're not going to back down that mountain. It's, it's treacherous enough going forward. We're not backing down it, especially while we're being open fired on. You can't go any closer 
because the closer you get, the more dangerous, obviously, that is. And I'm sitting there thinking 35 yards. My, my bow can blow straight through an animal at 35 yards. I can't imagine the type of velocity and firepower that's being unleashed on you right now. What did you do? So obviously right then we started to implement what our, what would we have trained for, you know, uh, and obviously perfect world scenario, you dismount on the contact side or the non-contact side, the side that's not receiving any fire from that L ambush because it's typically going to be on two apexes. You're normally not going to get from hit from all three apexes because what is going to happen? You're going to have force on force. They'll shoot their self. You know what I mean? Which they don't want to do. So the non-contact side is where you want to dismount. So that was our standard operating procedures. So that lead vehicle essentially pushed up a little more and turned slightly. So it had a little more protection with its metal protection versus just mainly glass for the driver, for the gunner, et cetera. That gunner comes down. They obviously start performing immediate action on them from a first aid standpoint, but the next person's up. We got another person that's working to get up into the gun to really try to get that gun up and running. Well, during that time span, you now have RPGs that are firing at the vehicles that stuck within the L ambush. Well, I'm second in the order of movement. So I've already went on the net and told everybody that's key personnel based on our standard operation procedures to dismount on the contact side. And I gave them a rally point to move to, to consolidate so that we can consolidate our forces and conduct some kind of uh, immediate action on this threat that we just received. Well, in my position, I am the uh, assistant driver up in the front of the Humvee. My driver's on my left, I'm on the right, my side's a contact side. I cannot physically get out on the other side. So as a leader and the way I train and the way I fight, I have to lead by example. So I've got to get into the fight. If I want to make a difference for my soldiers, I have to lead the way. So I dismount on my contact side. I am on the contact side. They have built a trench inside of the pine trees. It's all pine trees. I'm approximately 10 yards from the ledge of that trench that's embedded behind the base of those pine trees. As I dismount on my side, I open the door and come out. Less than 10 yards, there's an AK-47 facing straight at my 12 o'clock. I have met contact eye to eye. I've now seen this person. My, my M16 or my M4 is down below. I'm in the process of drawing up as I step out and then multiple rounds, especially one goes right by my face at that point, okay? At that point, I can either fold up, I can hide back in my vehicle, I, I can run from this, or I can return fire and I can allow myself to try to eliminate that threat. So after that round went off, I immediately fired, engaged, into that personnel as I bounded towards that uh, edge of that trench line to allow myself to get a little bit of cover from the machine guns and from the RPGs. As I get along the side of that mountain, my interpreter is right behind me. He's sitting in the seat behind me. His name's Mahi. He currently right now lives in Nebraska. That's gonna carry us to that story later 
of how he actually become an American citizen. But it started right there in that fight. He got out. He tapped me on the back of the shoulder, and he's got his AK-47, and he says, sir, I got you at 6 o'clock. Let's go. Okay? I love it. That's that's fantastic. Okay, so RPGs are going off. You've got rounds going by your head. We engage the threat. We go up, and you got got a little cover now from the big gun because you've gotten in such a close proximity, right? Um and again, I, I'm so visual, so I try to I try to imagine all this. So you're running at basically at that L, that L apex where they've got this gun set because the closer that you get to it, obviously the harder it is for them to get it down on you to get that get that fire at you. They're actually going to have to engage you with a smaller arm to to kind of get like you were saying an AK-47 M4 or something of that you know that description as opposed to this big turret-based machine gun. Um, so, all right, cool. We get up there. And, and so I'm, I'm harkening back right now. Remembering you just told me that you never lost anyone that was in your command. So how did we get out of this without losing a soldier? Yeah. So I, I, I bound up and I'm parallel to that trench line. I'm moving up, like I said, like you said, toward the apex where there's another bend in the road as I'm moving up. I go ahead and make eye contact with my captain that's in the uh, assistant driver's seat in that Humvee that's still being suppressed. They're still being engaged. I make eye contact with him on my headset. I say, open the door. Open the door on your side, push it open. I'm gonna come to you. So I ran right across the street. I left my interpreter right there to continue to pull security to the six o'clock. I bound up. I essentially confirmed that everybody's alive and we're all right. Yep, my gunner is hurt. Okay, eventually ends up losing sight in one eye. But at that point, you know, we're doing the right things. I tell my captain, because he was my close air support guy, I said, you get on the net, stay in the vehicle, get on the net, and let's get some close air support in here, and let's see if we can get a little bit extra support that can give us a little bit of uh, oversight to really have some eyes from the top down to really eliminate some of these threats. Once I got done with him, I then bounded to the vehicles behind me. And each one of the vehicles behind me that I bounded to, we ensured that everybody dismounted that was supposed to dismount. And I moved some vehicles up to where they could get some ability to, to, to suppress that PKM. Because we all know, once you take contact, you got to be able to provide uh, uh, ability for your elements to maneuver. You got to be able to suppress that threat so that those maneuver elements are not fired upon directly. There's still going to always be some shrapnel and some other sporadic fire, but we had to eliminate that PKM. So we bound another vehicle up. We're able to get some suppression on that gun. We consolidate in the southeast corner. I have about 18 people. With those 18 people, and now my AMP, which are my Afghan counterparts with the police, they take up a 360 or 180 security on the backside force. So there ain't nobody coming in. We're going to eliminate what threats inside the box. We've now got a good perimeter established. We essentially get on the ground and draw a quick, hasty sand, sand table to show where the threats are how we're going to go about it and how we're going to eliminate those threats 
And and not right now, I can sit here and tell you when 12 men get online and they start firing every piece of equipment system that they have available from a 203 grenade launcher, you know, to another AK, uh, another AK-47 to an M249 saw, and those suckers are moving up down that line. There ain't a lot of Afghans that want to fight in the trench line. When you get in there in close proximity with them, start throwing some hand grenades and doing some other quick. Uh, hasty battle drills that work for your advantage, you put yourself in a position where the enemy now is no longer in charge of this fight. And that's that's awesome. And so I, I love what you say there about, because it's, I, this is just how my brain works. So I'm sitting here thinking about this the, the entire time you're talking. And I'm immediately thinking in my brain, and, I, and mind you, I have zero military training. So I may be on the complete wrong wrong wavelength here, but my immediate thought was, obviously we have a threat directly in front of us that's engaging us, but we have no way of knowing that if they have other people that waited for us to come by that are about to close in behind us and trap us in a kill box, essentially. You know, and, and so I love what you said, you know, you had your, your Afghani counterparts established a, a rear perimeter that, that made sure nobody's getting in that way, and you're able to focus everything you've got on that one threat. You've got that one element of adversity that you're able to now consolidate your resources, pull everything together, get everybody on the same page, and say, okay, weapons hot, let's go. And now we go through there and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the rabbit has the gun. And You're exactly right. I mean, there's, uh, those Afghanis are a total different fighter when you start dealing with the Taliban and ISIS and those people within that community. They're just way different fighters uh, when somebody's in their back hip pocket that's running, running the show. Uh, and any day of the week when you have more firepower than they have, you're in a better position, especially when you got the ability to maneuver on them. Okay, and, and that's what we was able to do. We wouldn't, we didn't go back to Colonel Chamberlain, you know, back in Civil War and didn't do no swinging door on them to be able to close the gate down. But we were able to get online and really be able to sweep, consolidate and stacked up properly in the trench to really clear that trench line out because you had a lot of elbows in there. You had a lot of movement that they could kind of go into cubby holes and get away and get hide. And you know, as well as I do, when you allow yourself to have the ability to physically dominate, the ability to overcome that discomfort and to be precise or have precision with what you're doing, you're in a position to win. I don't care what you're doing in life. If you can do it at that level, you can do it in any aspect of your life with that attention to deal, uh, detail and that specificity in your training prior to getting thrown in that, in, uh, that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we see that from everything from the military to athletics, um, you know, and people talk about sports specificity, blah, 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 you know, and, and we can we can go down that rabbit hole as well. But, um, you know, I, I love that what you're getting at there is just that what you just said, if you have the if you have the ability to dominate your opponent. Right. And then you're all on the same page and we're all pulling in the same direction and we're all paying high attention to detail and we're all executing at a high efficiency, you, your, your, your chances of uh, success are, are pretty well stacked in your favor. And you know, I can say those exact same words to my 
14 to 18 year old football players for about a Friday exactly. night football game is the exact same words that you can say to your soldiers who are fighting for their lives. Those are exactly those words right. are applicable, and not only between you know the military or athletics, but you know, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical opponent. You know, it, it might be your health. You know, I, that's that's something that I've struggled with forever. And, and and one of the best things I've done for myself recently is hire a nutrition coach, someone that can teach me and and coach me on how to physically dominate but in this case wouldn't be physically it would be mentally dominate my biggest opponent which is in between my ears so learning to dominate that opponent having the ability to do so then executing at a high level through systems that we put in place in the way that we train ourselves and way we practice and the way that we set ourselves up for success it gives you the opportunity to be successful when that opportunity comes along otherwise you're just waiting and hoping and leaving everything to chance and the chances that the other person left everything to chance to are very slim. So now, now that you're you're at a disadvantage because they they probably didn't leave everything to chance. In fact, the Afghans the Afghanis that you encountered didn't leave everything to chance. It sounded to me like they were very coordinated to begin with, and were able to catch you completely off you know not off guard necessarily, but by surprise, you know. Most definitely, they did um, they did have the advantage you know initially, but the tides turned pretty quick. Uh, when you and again, when you have any organization or any individual that is goal-centered, okay, that that has a purpose and knows, you know, what they're trying to accomplish, and then puts in the hard work, works through that hard adversity, that hard area where it's going to really push you to an envelope. I don't care if it's physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever aspect, but you got to be able to get through those trials. So then you can look back behind, make notes, and then now you don't make the same mistake again, okay? So one thing we did just in that area, okay, prime example, the rest of our combat deployments, so that was in the first three months we had to go through that pass. The next, next 50 times we went through that pass, before we got even within a, a click, a thousand meters of it, we were dismounted and off the road, clearing areas so nobody had a chance to get a foothold. And be able to catch us by surprise in those certain areas that choked us in. Yeah, so say so you 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 experience that. We conquer it, right? You come out victorious. You know, you you had flesh wounds to say to say you know basically is what what it came out to some flesh wounds and everybody everybody's okay. Everybody survived through that and and it, it, it's fine. Um, and then you learn and you adapt and now. That that moment, that adversity moment, has simply become, instead of a defining moment, it's simply become another instance of training. That's correct. Because now we've passed through it. It's it's no longer something that we're living in. It's now a part of the thing that that, that that's trained us and, and molded us into what we are, right? And so if, if we can learn to see adversity as opportunities for training, as opportunities for advancement, then I feel like we'll approach discomfort so much better, right? What, what's, you know, I had, I had somebody tell me the other day that they were talking about weightlifting. We are talking about lifting weights and things. And, and uh, I'm going to, I'm actually going to pull this up because I want to, I want to read this word for word because I, the way I responded to it, um, I think you'll, you'll, you will like this. Um, 
So we were talking about different movements that this person's doing in their workout. And he said, um, he said, I don't like the movements. They're draining and it doesn't feel good or satisfying like some of the other movements. And listed some of the movements they like doing and says, uh, those are all movements I feel satisfied with. I can push myself with those movements. And I can feel it. They aren't just movements that feel awkward or drain all my energy after I do it. My immediate response was, so in other words, they aren't movements that expose your weakness. That's right. And, and th this, this guy was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, the reason that they're do making you feel that way is because they're exposing issues and weakness in your kinetic chain, right? Points of, points of very high vulnerability. That's why they're hard. It's not just they're hard for the sake of being hard because if someone that doesn't have that same weakness walks in the gym, can do a lickety split, no problem. Uh, and one of the things he talked about was deadlift. And I, I mean, you and I both know deadlift can be very hard, but deadlift also can be very, very simple. And it's, it's, if you're training right. in it and it, it becomes a very easy movement, it's basically an elevator. It's up and down. Um, yeah. and, and so I, I think that that's kind of the thing with adversity and discomfort is people don't like it because it exposes where we're weak. But how are you going to get strong if you don't train? No, you're exactly right, Taylor. Uh, that'd be a, that's a great segue when you start talking about weakness, because that's one of the things I emphasize, you know, in my coaching philosophy is, you know, when I get a new client or I get a new athlete to work with, that's the first thing I'm going to tell them. When I do my analysis, my whole analysis is to find all your weaknesses, because once I find your weaknesses, I know how to program for you. I, I don't give you a cookie cutter program that maybe I've given to another athlete or another warrior. I, I wanna make your weaknesses your strength because we already know your strengths are already gonna get better anyway because you work on those because you're good at them. That's right. You know? That's right. So, I mean, if we, if we only train what we're good at, we're never gonna get better. You're, you're always just gonna be good at that thing. And you know, and I, I've, I've talked to a, a mutual friend of ours before about this, Bill Gillespie, who is, is one of the, the the greatest in the history of the world at the bench press. That's I mean, right. he has a niche and he's so very good at it. But Bill is also a very accomplished lifter and coach in every other area as well. I mean, like it's easy for people to see that he's hyper successful in one thing, but that, and to ignore all the work that goes into the other areas where he may not be quite as quote unquote strong you know, and, and even yourself in your powerlifting career, you know, with powerlifting at, at competition days, you express strength with bench, squat, and deadlift. But that's not the only movements that you train. No, that is a great, uh, great piece you just brought up there, Taylor. That's why at age 49, people said, what are you doing? What are you training for right now, Donnie? I said, I'm training for weightlifting. I'm going to compete in Olympic weightlifting. I just competed in Salt Lake City in the Nationals in the snatch and the cling and jerk. And wow. you know how many times I trained the snatch in my life? Zero. Zero times I had ever done a complete snatch until I was 49 years old. Because you know what I wanted? I wanted some discomfort. I wanted to find out where my weaknesses was. And I wanted to see if I could overcome this adversity and allow this to make me a better coach and also make me a more well-rounded athlete in all five events on the platform. Oh, that's awesome. See, I, I, did not, I didn't know you did that. I haven't, uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to you, uh, I guess, since February when we were at Winter Strong, because so, I, I missed Summer Strong this year yeah. um, with, my, with my little girl's birthday party. But 
uh, man, that so that is awesome. How did how did you finish? What were your numbers? Uh, give me give me some oh, insight. I, uh, I was uh, I was very happy with my numbers considering it was really my first ever official meet. Yeah. Um, I missed the podium by one kilo in the cling and jerk. Okay, for a fifty year old in yeah, eighty one kilogram class. And okay, so I you're competing in the eighty one kilo kilogram class 80, in the in the masters, right? And fifty to fifty four. Okay. Or fifty to fifty five age, because I, I turned okay. fifty this year. Okay. Uh so hey, I had a blast to be one kilo off and then only be ten kilos off in the snatch. I was like, and this and I hadn't even been training this for six months. So I did. I told them all this was a great sport, shook their hand and just reminded them that in two thousand fourteen I went to uh, South I went to Johannesburg on the world team in powerlifting, my first ever world championship. I finished fourth place, and then in 15 and 16, I won the world championship back-to-back. So I told him I would see him all again next year, and I look forward to seeing, you know, what's going to happen after another year of training. Oh, that is fantastic. So I, I, I knew all about your powerlifting career, obviously, um, and, and I have wondered, like, what, what was next for you? Um, so man, hearing that you're getting into weightlifting, dude, that's got, that's got me freaking pumped up, man. I don't know. Like, I know you can probably see it through the video. Like I'm all leaned in and excited right now. Um, I, I love weightlifting. I love watching weightlifting. And so man, getting, getting to, I mean, I can't wait to follow along with this. It's going to be so flipping cool. Um, so, all right. So you're in the 81 kilo. What, what'd you clean and jerk? What'd you snatch, man? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting oh, nerded I out. And jerk, uh, I did, um, let me get the numbers right off my head. I'm converting them from uh, kilos. That's okay. You can just give me kilos. <laughs> yeah. So it was a uh, it was a 107 cling and jerk, and then it was um, uh, 77 for snatch. So, that so was 184 numbers. total at 81 kilos. Yep. Golly, yep. man. And like that's I said, nuts. It was my first ever, and I only trained about five months for it. Uh, that is so, crazy. And I was happy to say that, you know, I only did a PVC pipe for the first two months, you know, and I had to lose a bunch of muscle upper body because they're like, hey, you you bench too much. You got you got a little too much stiffness on the front side. We got to limber that up a little bit. So I dropped about 10 pounds and played around and ate some humble pie every day, you know, with uh, James Tatum. I know you probably know him. He's 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 been he's done a lot with uh, Soren X. Uh, so he he co- he's been coaching me for the last year. Oh, that's awesome. That was my next question was who was coaching you. So, okay, for, for people who are listening who may not know the difference. So powerlifting uh, and versus weightlifting. So weightlifting and powerlifting are both international sports uh, that, that, are, that are strength athletes that have competed at a very high level. So powerlifting is a, is a three-lift total, um, bench press, back squat, and deadlift. You get three, you know, three attempts at all three lifts, and, and you take a, an overall total – and that gives you your 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 amount, and then you compete in a weight class and age division, et cetera, et cetera. Major Bigham has competed on the national team for the United States, has won world championships in powerlifting, is extremely, extremely accomplished. The shift over into weightlifting, though, is what we call, or as uh, those of us in the strength conditioning sphere would call it, is Olympic lifting, which is what you will see at the Summer Olympics, where they do a, a clean from the floor, stand up, and then do a jerk overhead. They do a split jerk or power jerk, whichever one, um, overhead, and lock that out. And then the snatch is, you know, obviously from the floor uh, in one motion up and over the top of the head with that wider grip. Um, so... Major Bigham here and talking about weighing in at 81 kilos and then going and doing a a total of 184 kilos is extremely, 
impressive because the the raw numbers come out to a 405-ish pound total at 184 kilos over those two lifts. And you said you did uh, one 107 on your clean and jerk. Yeah. So you know, I mean that that's roughly 235 pounds. So the the number there that people are missing is that you're weighing in at roughly 175 to 180 pounds, give or take on your weigh-in day. And you're doing, you know, 235 pounds from the floor, chest level, stand up, and then in one big motion, boom, press right over the top of your head. So, you know, you're going way over body weight and then, you know, doing pretty close to your body weight at 170 pounds from the floor straight over to the top of your head. All of this on six months training coming off of a powerlifting career where it's a complete opposite type of movement. So what I like to tell people about powerlifting is, is we're trying to move the most weight, the least amount of distance possible. You want to go the very, I mean, the, you want to be so, you know, obviously some people like to leave no doubt when they go to their depth on squat. But when I've coached kids, I, I want to teach them to find that spot where it's, it's, you know, they're going to get the white light, but you know, we're, we're not, uh, we're not going, going to be extra generous with our depth here because, you know, the deeper you go, the increase the range of motion, obviously the more difficult that becomes when we can decrease that range of motion, it allows us to, to be a little bit better. That's the way I've, I've always coached it, the way I've always been told about it. You want to move the most weight the least amount possible. And it's not a very fast, necessarily, very speedy type of motion. Olympic lifting, on the other hand, is extremely explosive and it's extreme ranges of motion. You know, we see these guys, like yourself included, take those weights that are bent down there, grabbing it from the floor, pull it up, and clean underneath it and snap underneath it and their dead gum glutes are touching their Achilles tendons and then they stand all the way up and we got to go straight over the top of the head with it. I mean, it's this absolute, completely different ends of the spectrum and for you to miss the podium by one kilo, so that's 2.2 pounds for those who don't, don't speak weightlifting, one kilo separated you from fourth place and third place on essentially four months of actual training because your first couple months, like you said, are all technical based where you're basically moving with a broomstick instead of anything else. That is incredible. Kudos to you. Thank you so you. much, Taylor. Oh, I, I owe that to James. You know, James did a great job and and all the programming and, and all his coaching. Uh, but he did kind of, you know, tell me uh, I was a little different, you know, from a power lifter than the average one he works with. And I think that probably goes back to my tactical training that allows me to be more well-rounded. I can't be your true 100% all or nothing power lifter. So even when I won the world championship in Finland, Back in 2015, I squatted, uh, I squatted a 595 uh, bench, 365, and I pulled 622 at 181 pounds. And then I turned around within two weeks later, uh, ran a sub 13 minute two mile. Uh, so it was like a 1245, uh, and I maxed all my bench for the PT test uh, within sub two, two or three weeks after winning the world championship. So that's why I say I sent that out to all my friends that was on my national team with me and said, hey, y'all guys go out and run two miles and let's see what your time is. They all blew me out of the water and said, no way. 
No way, Jose, am I going to go to the opposite end of the energy system and get out of an ATP or a phosphogen energy system and go into an aerobic or oxidative state, you know? No, that's that, that's crazy. That's that's crazy talk. Who would do that? I mean, and, and that's that's one of the things I, I love about about what, you know, your story is, is that you have been such a well, well-rounded and, and complete machine, so to speak, because of the way you've had to train, you know, and, and, you know, I, I also, man, I want to touch on this too, because I think this is very important. You mentioned the PT test that was in the, within the military. And for years and years and years, the PT test has been what the PT test is, but we're seeing a shift here where we're going to what is known as the ACFT, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's the Army Combat Fitness t- Test. Is that right? Is that that's correct. That's okay, correct. so we we're getting a shift to that. To six a shift to the ACFT, and 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 you've had a big influence within that shift. Most definitely, I was I was at the infancy of this. I was a head strength coach at the U.S. Army Physical Fitness School there at Fort Jackson uh, when we were developing the Occupational Physical Assessment Test for initial entry. Uh, soldiers and the development of the Army Combat Fitness Test six events, you know, after 40 years, because uh, the original PT test went in place right after uh, Carter's administration. Back in 78, he kind of brought in the PE guru, you know, the, the guy that was kind of writing things for the presidential fitness test uh, that was on the National Council. Um, he was actually doing that then, uh, and he was able to help them develop the three event PT test. And it was fortunate I got an opportunity to help change where the Army is right now in 2022 and the event that's been in place now since 2018. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Discomfort by Design. Major Bigham got called away while we were in the middle of recording, which is okay. That happens. Uh, So we actually went ahead and scheduled a time to sit down and to continue this episode together. We were uh, really enjoying the conversation. We're going to actually dive into his full role in creating the ACFT, the Army Combat Fitness Test, uh, and uh, his role as a Army strength coach, as well as uh, get into some of the things he has coming up, some of the things he has going, and such as that. So we're we actually are scheduled to record that podcast next week. Uh, I appreciate you guys listening to part one of this podcast with Major Donnie Bigham. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a great day, guys. You've been listening to the Discomfort by Design podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a review. And we'll see you next time.